Hello and welcome to Hungry for Words, the podcast, which I talk to food writers and we talk about, well, food. I'm your host, Kathleen Flynn. Today I'll be talking with Dan Jurafsky and I'm really excited. He is a professor and chair of linguistics at Stanford University. He's also the author of the book, The Language of Food, A Linguist Reads the Menu. This is a fantastically interesting interview, I think. We touch on everything from how macaroni connects to macaroons, to how Julia Child got him into culinary linguistics, and even, wait for it, the connection between sex and Yelp reviews. It's going to be a great show. This episode of Hungry for Words is sponsored by Wolf, encouraging you to reclaim your kitchen, starting with one home-cooked family meal per week. Visit reclaimthekitchen.com for tips, techniques, and recipes from Wolf Cooking Tools. And by our media partner, foodista.com. Join a passionate community of food lovers at foodista.com. And by our partner, Book Larder, Seattle's community cookbook bookstore. Learn more at booklarder.com. So Dan's book doesn't actually contain any recipes, which is an anomaly so far in the people that I've talked to for the show. So I had to think about what would I make? And I thought, what would be representative of what we end up talking about in the show? And I decided on coconut macaroons. And so before we get too excited, I'm not talking about French macaroons, which are, you know, we have the two halves and you have the filling in the middle. And this is really why they're so perfect for the show, right? Because there are two different kinds of macaroons. So what I'm going to be making for him today are actually the kind of drop macaroons where you use the shredded coconut and then some egg whites and vanilla and you, and you bake them like that. Very, very straightforward. This recipe is is based on one that I got from a woman that I used to work with um, at the Sarasota Herald Tribune. She occasionally brought these in and I used to eat more than my share of them because I'm not normally much of a sweets person, but I really love coconut. This is really pretty straightforward. I'm going to just kind of do it now. It's the, this morning. He's going to be here in like an hour and a half. But, I, you know, that's one of the great things about this particular recipe is you can kind of just throw it together. So I have egg whites. I put them into this bowl. I'm going to add a little salt. And now I'm going to whisk. And I'm going to whisk and whisk and whisk. They're supposed to be stiff so that when you pull up say the whisk or or whatever that they make a stiff peak like the peak isn't drooping over anything like that so i'm just gonna sit here for a while and work on my packs and like just sit here and just whisk so now i have stiff peaks now i'm going to fold in some sugar and some vanilla and the coconut. So and it's really kind of the key thing here is you want to make sure that it's like the coconut and everything gets wet and that the sugar is put all the way through, but you don't want to overmix it. Like you want to keep some of that kind of lift from the egg whites. Now I've got this all kind of incorporated, but it's still got a little lightness to it. It's got a little fluffiness to it. So now you just take a uh, pan. I just put some parchment paper on it and take one rounded tablespoon at a time and drop it ever so slightly. P- 
pinch the top of each macaroon. Then I'm going to put them into my oven for about 10 to 15 minutes. And you can kind of tell when they're done because they start to get lightly brown. Your coconut macaroons timer is done. They're looking good. I'm pretty excited. I'm really interested to see how Dan likes them. So I'm sitting here with Dan at my kitchen table. And I just have to ask you, so I, I loved your book. I, I thought it was so fascinating. You're such a like history food geek person like me. I just felt you were a kindred soul. Kindred souls indeed. <laughs> yes. So how did you get into your field? How did you end up deciding to go into linguistics? Well, I've been interested in language since I was a little kid, actually. Um, I uh, was always interested in learning foreign languages, and I was excited about learning you know, ancient languages and where languages came from. And when I was a very young, I guess I was dog-sitting, I must have been 10 or 12, one of the neighbors had, had the two volumes of Julia Child. And I remember, you know, wait, while waiting for the dog, just kind of reading through their Julia Child and, and just being struck that all of these sauces had names. Like there was a different word for everything. Like the French, they had a word for everything. And I thought that was so interesting that there was an entire language and maybe that's how I got started. I love that it could have been tied back to Julia Child. Julia, I, I think Julia. all roads go back to Julia Absolutely. Child. Absolutely. <laughs> so true. So, and then you decided to go into studying languages and, and linguistics and what kind of what kind of academic path does that look like? I mean, I'm a liberal arts major, so it's kind of not part of my my world. So walk me through that. What, yeah. what did you do? So um, I majored in linguistics, and um, so I'm the chair of linguistics at Stanford now. So it's my job to encourage young people to go into linguistics. So I'm going to paint you a very rosy picture that linguistics is this fabulous field where you get to learn all about human language, and we can study it as a humanity, you know, how is poetry different in different genres, or how do literary genres differ in their linguistic properties, or you could study it as a social science, what makes different people in different regions, how do they talk differently, how is it that we can tell where someone's from by how they speak, and and who are the innovators in language, you know, how does language change, what makes it change? There's some lovely results suggesting that it's teenage women are the drivers of language change, and that's just I find that really fascinating. So language is, is it's everywhere, you know, it's, it's um, the web is full of words and everything we do, we talk to people and we write about things. And food is a great example of this because the language of food is everywhere. You can't really eat without talking about it. There's books and there's blogs and there's recipes and there's menus and food reviews and it's just everywhere. And, and systematically studying that is so exciting. And so are you a big food person yourself? I know you live in San Francisco. and I am. I am. I love to cook, although I have to admit my wife, Janet, does more of the cooking lately. She's a, she's, we're very different cooks. I'm the, um, I'm, you know, I'm kind of a academic-y cook. So I make sure that the recipe, I cook it exactly like it says in the recipe. And I'm really interested in the culture behind that particular recipe and where it came from. And I might make multiple versions to see the history. And she's the kind of, she is, she's an artist. She'll open the fridge and she'll make something delicious out of what's there. And I'll be like, but we're missing the this particular herb. She goes, well, we'll try it with a different herb. And it's, um, yeah, so. I'm, I'm more like your wife, I think. Yeah, those are the, the real <laughs> yeah. cooks. That's the real, those are the people who have the gift. Yeah, I don't have the gift, but I but I love to eat. Well, and, and you love to write about words about food, which as a food writer, I found, I think that's part of the reason why I, I was so into this book. Because to me, I think, you know, you can 
crafts so much about the experience of about food by you know using the right words and all this other stuff and it turns out that every word you choose which is true in all writing but particularly in food writing has so much weight and history to it Absolutely. I mean, we think that when when you're writing, it's all about choosing the right word, and we're just trying to express a certain kind of meaning. And we forget that words, first of all, they have a history, that words come from places, and the history has things to tell you. But also, words have a kind of social meaning. You know, words come with, we like to, we don't like to talk about social class and social groupings. We try to, you know, ignore them in America. That's our tradition. But still, a word, it, it uh, you know, the 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 way you use a word can tell you what kind of restaurant you are or what kind of social experience you're trying to express for your customers. Yeah, which brings me to the subject of menus, for instance. Um, one of the opening paragraphs is about menus and, and the word of entree, which I thought was fascinating. I lived in Paris for two years and I lived in London. And just between those two countries, the ways that they use the word entree is so distinctly different than, say, an American, how that evolved. I, I thought that was fascinating. Maybe yeah, can talk absolutely, about that. absolutely. So, you know, I have friends come visit from from Britain. And, and, and you know, in, so in Britain and in France, the word entree means the appetizer course. And the word entree literally means entrance. So that seems kind of a natural meaning for entree. So my friends who come visit say, oh, you Americans, you're just using entree wrong. The word should mean appetizer, and you're just using it wrong. And so I, I set out to see if this was really true. And it turns out, well, the Americans are right. If you look at the, the history of the word, the word originally meant an early meat course, early in the meal, but it had to be a heavy meat course. And slowly the word changed in meaning over the years. And the American usage, which is the, the main meat course, it used to be there was another course after the entree, the roast. And we just stopped having the roast as a course. You know, we don't have these seven course meals anymore. And so we kind of conflated the entree and the roast and we're left with entree as the main course. And France changed the meaning of the word very sharply in the 1920s and 30s. It had meant this meat course that happened after the soup and before the roast. And somehow it changed there to mean the appetizer because for them, the word still meant entrance and it kind of sensibly changed its meaning. So I like this fact that, you know, here we think we're, we're, we've got it wrong, but really we sort of accidentally preserve the original meaning of the word. That also brings me back to the uh, points that you made around having French, say, in menus um, to give an idea that this is fancier and therefore more expensive and that kind of strange mix of English and French that you discovered in menus. Absolutely. If you look at, at menus, let's say 100 years ago, how did a restaurant proclaim its fanciness? Even the Italian restaurants, to be a fancy Italian restaurant, the menu would be in French. Fancy restaurants served French food. French was the sign of high culture and high dining. And if you were a fancy restaurant, your menu was just entirely in French. And that lasted quite a long time. Even when I was a kid in the 60s and 70s, a fancy restaurant used French on the menus. And that only began to change in the, really in the, in the 70s and 80s when it, it, you know, the rise of fancy Italian restaurants and fancy Japanese restaurants. And all of a sudden, it, uh, people began to think that, that it wasn't just French that was fancy. Now, the way that menus have changed, I mean, you talk a lot about that, about, say, you know, noting the provenance of ingredients, for instance, as being a sign that something is sort of fancier or... Absolutely. We looked at thousands of menus and we found, for example, that the expensive menus mention where the food is from 15 times as often as the cheap menus. 
lots of other differences. The cheaper the menu, the more often they use the word you or your way. They talk about you, the diner. The more expensive the restaurant instead, the more likely they are to mention the chef. They'll talk about the chef's choice or the chef's selection. So there's, a, there's almost a difference in who they're talking to, these menus, and who they're emphasizing. I love that you put in a Portlandia reference. Absolutely. To that whole Clive the chicken. Absolutely. I'm going to have to find a clip of that put it in the show. That is, it is so great. great. Yeah. So the other thing I wanted to talk to you about is obviously macaroons. So I made some macaroons oh, today. Oh, they look beautiful. Thank you. And I this is only my second time making them. And well, one, I want you to try my macaroons and see what you think. I'm so, looking you, forward to this. Because you yeah. said that you would make these. Like this is sort of a family sort of tradition. Yeah, my mom made macaroons. Actually, I have never made macaroons. Mm. Is that true? I think that's true. My mom made macaroons. Okay, let me try your macaroons. Mm-hmm. Oh, that is delicious. Thank you. Oh, it has the perfect caramelization and crunch on the outside. Mm. It's not too sweet. I actually used, I made a cake. Mm. For this auction last week, which is a whole story about itself, but I was trying to impress all these other foodie people, and I really don't bake. And I made this really overly ambitious, complex coconut cake. So I bought coconuts, and my husband broke the coconuts open. Wow. And so this is actually- You his, are ambitious. It was stupidly ambitious. It was like this multi-tier cake, and I really wow. never baked. The last time I made wow. a cake was my two years ago. But, but so this has a mix of- the cake, like the baker's sweetened mm. coconut, but it also has real coconut mm. that we grated out. And here's a tip for you, by the way. If you get a coconut and you open it up, the best way to do it is you hold it in your hand and you toss it and you just keep tapping on the kind of the equator of the coconut. And it will, over time, it will just kind of wear it down and it will just crack. It's crazy because it's so hard. My husband tried to open a coconut once with a sawzall in Florida. Yeah, I have definitely tried to open a coconut with a with a with, yeah. a, with a saw, and it you it, tap it with what? You just like uh, he just used uh, my French baking pin. Wow! Like literally just a bake, yeah, just a wow. rolling pin. Rolling pin. Rolling That's pin. That's amazing. It's crazy. So he did it, and you have to do it over a bowl, and then it will crack, and then the water starts to come out, which of course is coconut water. Yeah. So we totally kept that. And then we peeled it all off. And then we scraped the brown stuff off the outside of it because it kind of has, it's like a pith of a of an orange. It just has kind of a different it's flavor. Fibrous, yeah. I think it's fine. But um, then you get to the white stuff. And then I was going to just scrape, like grate it, yeah. which is a multi-day event. It's like, would have taken forever? I don't know what I was thinking. So I just, cut, you know, cut it all up into chunks and I put it in my Vitamix. That makes sense. And it was like awesome. It like totally sense. like grated Oh, and it, it doesn't, and it. And it didn't liquefy it. That's what I was going to say. It doesn't liquefy it. Mm-hmm. It's a really nice texture. Thank you. Now you've inspired me. I'm going to go home and bake macaroons. Mm, they're really easy. I th- decided this is my new go-to thing to take wow. the stuff. Well, it doesn't sound, the way you make it doesn't sound that easy <laughs> if you have to tap open a coconut. You don't have to go through the coconut. <laughs> but you talked about macaroons and macaroni. And I thought the whole macaroni discussion was fascinating. It is. The history of pasta is so interesting. I mean, first of all, the fact that macaroons and macaron and macaroni are the same word is just mind-blowing to me by itself. But the history of pasta is just so interesting. You know, there's this myth that pasta came from China with Marco Polo, and that's just not true at all. You know, the Italians had pasta before Marco Polo even left. But how pasta got to Italy, so interesting. It seems to have been the Arabs. So the, there was pasta in the Middle East. It's recorded in the Jerusalem Talmud, and it's recorded in Arab writings in the 6th and 7th and 8th century. But this was seems to have been 
pasta in soups, this idea of like a dried pasta that you make as a main course really seems to have developed in Sicily, in Italy, you know, with sort of the mixture of the Christians and the Arabs and, and everybody was there and um, a fascinating period. And uh, along with this idea that the, the local hard wheat that grows in Sicily was used to make this dried pasta, this uh, this pasta tradition developed, but at the same time, these amazing desserts that came from the Arab world, from Persia and and Baghdad, these um, these uh, almond almond paste desserts with honey and and um, marzipan kinds of desserts, and and all of these things came at the same time. The, the Christian world at the time had a lot of meatless days, and in those days, when you couldn't eat meat, you also couldn't eat milk. So Wednesdays and Fridays were meatless and milkless. So lots of cookbooks had a version of recipes with milk and one without milk. So there were a lot of cases where you have almond flour, almond milk versions of things, and then you have cheese versions of things. So this idea that while there was a macaroni, which seemed to have originally meant something like gnocchi, kind of a lump of dough with maybe with cheese, but it was a little sweet. It had rose water in it. And then there was the the macaron, which was the the almond flour version of it. This seems somehow there were like these two separate things, and and we think of them now as such different foods. I also thought what was fascinating is the that whole he put a feather in his hat and called it macaroni, which was. Can you talk about that? Because yes. I thought that was fascinating. Yes, another another kind of macaroni. So so macaroni um, actually appears in the very first English cookbook um, in the the fourteen hundreds. But it had died out of, of English cooking altogether. And then around the 1700s, it became the thing for, you know, young aristocratic men, dandies. They would go to Italy on the tour and they, they brought back this taste for this weird foreign food, which was pasta, uh, which they called macaroni. And they began to be called macaronis kind of in mockery, these, these dandies. And they wore these weird little hats with feathers in them high up on their, these tall hairdos and they ate pasta. And so everybody poked fun at these macaronis and their weird fashion sense. And so in Yankee Doodle, they're, you know, here's this, they're poking fun at this, uh, you know, American who tries to dress up by and, and pretend he's a macaroni by putting a feather in his hat. And so here, the word macaroni still has that sense of, of, of this dandy in, in one of our, you know, formative songs. And I never knew what that meant. I, I'm sure a lot of people didn't. Absolutely, thought, what a yeah. Weird, what a weird, yeah. weird phrase. I, yeah. I just never understood And they're all that. related, you know, the Yankee Doodle and macaroni and macaroon. It's all the same. Yeah, it's it's fascinating. fascinating how everything is linked. So I think now that's the time we should talk about sex. It's never too early to talk about sex. Absolutely. And I think what's fascinating about it is that it involves sex and Yelp reviews. So Absolutely. let's talk about that because I thought that was really interesting. Absolutely. So so another great use of language is reviewing. And we looked at a million Yelp reviews on the web, reviews of restaurants, and just looked to see what people said when they either liked a restaurant or really hated a restaurant. So when people love a restaurant, here's the kind of phrases they used orgasmic pastry, seductively seared foie gras, very naughty, deep fried pork belly, lots of beautiful, sexy descriptions. It wasn't just any restaurant that that got described in these sexual terms. It was only the expensive restaurants. So expensive food is somehow like sex. By contrast, we found that the um, 
the cheaper restaurants, cheaper food, not described at all in terms of sex. Instead, when you're talking about in one of these reviews about cheap food, you use words like craving or addicted or cupcakes being like crack. So it's almost as if you know, we're feeling guilty about eating this junk food. And by talking about drugs, we're saying, well, it's not my fault I ate this cupcake. You know, as I was addicted to it. I had no choice. I was forced to eat it. So I thought it was really fascinating, the, the comment that, you know, a lot of people talked about dessert. And their and whether or not they talked about dessert was a big key on what kind of restaurant they were writing about. Absolutely. So if people mentioned dessert in their review, then their scores for the restaurant were much higher. So, And how they talked about dessert was invariably positive. You know, if you look at how they talked about chicken or how they talked about the appetizer, there was lots of, there was positive things and negative things, but nobody hated dessert. I mean, not nobody, but very rarely did people hate dessert. So there's something about dessert that we like it, we talk about it positively, and if it's there, we tend to give the, if we mention it, you know, we give the restaurant a higher review. Dessert is really special. You know, and it's really funny, and the reason why this really resonated with me was um, when I was a restaurant reviewer, and I was kind of starting out, and I ended up working with Tom Sietzema, who is now the restaurant reviewer for The Washington Post. And I asked him to look over some of my reviews, and he gave them back to me, and he said, Kathleen, you're never write, you never write about dessert. And I said, well, you know, I don't really like sweets, which goes back to my wow. own bake. Wow. So I said, I just, I'm not one of those people who ever orders dessert. And he said, you always have to order dessert. You always have to order the chocolate thing because there's always some chocolate thing. You have to order, you know, you have to talk about it because some people, the reason they go out to eat is to have dessert. They have the rest of the meal, but they're really actually looking forward to dessert. That's me. That's, yeah, I'm, I've got the sweet tooth and yeah, I'm there for the dessert. Yeah. I even have a theory about different people and their different kinds of desserts they like. It's by color. So it goes black, white, green, red, brown. So there's your people who like chocolate. There's your people who like caramel. That's your brown. There's the people who like your meringues and vanilla ice creams. That's white. There's your lime people. That's your, that's your, your green. Um, there's your cherry and um, rhubarb and strawberry dessert people. That's your red. So everybody's got their dessert. And some people like, you know, multiple ones. But um, but yeah, I'm in it for the dessert. So it could almost be what color is your dessert instead of what color is your I like parachute. It. I, like I think it. I'm trying to think what color I would be. I think I would be kind of a, I would be like a yellow green. Pr- I love lemon. Like yeah. if there's a lemon thing or if there's an apple thing. I also like desserts that are kind of savory because I don't like sweet them. Yeah, that's how my wife is. She likes the savory. She likes the unusual savory touch. You know, this new trend in ice creams to have weird savory things in them. Mm-hmm. And um, I can respect that. But, uh, but uh, you know, I go for the I go for the mint ice cream. Yeah, I can I can totally see that. Yeah. I I think then I would be a white person because I like a really good a really good vanilla ice cream, like super nice. good quality. Nice or, or a but, panna cotta or Yeah, maybe, you know. When I was growing up there was this place down the street and they had blue moon ice cream and still I have such a strong association of like super positive association with blue moon ice cream because you had to be really good to get oh, ice cream. Nice, nice. And so obviously I'd done something worthy of ice cream and then I had blue moon ice cream. So if I go anywhere and they have blue moon ice cream, I always order it, even though it doesn't taste. It's very hard to escape the associations of our childhood. It's yeah. so, it's it's really so true. What was your big food that you loved as a kid? What When you were sick, what would your mom make you to eat? Well, actually the thing I, I disliked the most is what I had when I was sick, which was um, Lipton tea, uh, kind of 
let cool down a little bit. So it's just kind of lukewarm Lipton tea in a glass by my bedside. That's my association with being sick is all you could have is, is a little weak tea. Um, so I still can't drink um, weak Lipton tea. Oh, that's so funny. Yeah. And you said you were all about this, like dessert and the sweet. What If you had your ultimate birthday cake, what would what would it be? Oh, my favorite. I'm not a cake eater. Mm-hmm. Um, although um, there is a really great... Um, coffee crunch cake they used to it's an old san francisco tradition from the 30s um and you can still get it in one chinatown restaurant that 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 still has the old recipe but but my favorite dessert wouldn't be cake at all it would be um i like fruit pies but my favorite thing is i think it's it uh, i forget if it's called magic pie i had it once and i've tried to replicate it and always failed it's a, a meringue crust with nuts in it I'm really caramelized. I like caramel anything. And then a really sour lemon curd. I also like lemon. And then really sweet whipped cream and then chocolate shavings on top. So you've got your crunch, you've kind of this, your uh, caramelized crunch and you've got your sour and then you've got your sweet creaminess and then you've got chocolate, which is like, the perfect dessert. Oh, that sounds good. <laughs> that does. I would do it without the chocolate because okay. I don't like chocolate. I'm not a big chocolate person, but yeah. just shavings. But I can see that. Know? All the chocolate shavings. Yeah. I can see that. Totally. Great. So here's a question I had when you, you know, you're saying, oh, we looked at this a million Yelp reviews. Like, how do you do that? You're obviously not printing out a million Yelp reviews and going through it. So, you know, your whole area is computational linguistics. So how does that work? Absolutely. This is just a fun area of linguistics because there's so much data available now let's say on the web, like all of these reviews, that we can study aspects of being human that would just be very hard to study in a laboratory if we had to bring people in one by one and ask them questions. So we write programs to just count words or count phrases or look for different kind of patterns of words throughout the reviews. So we, we write little, the software is very simple, really. We're just counting things mostly. And we're looking for different kinds of words, words related, let's say, to sex or words related, let's say, to drugs. And there's lots of little statistical ways that you can say, tell me what words tend to occur more in those in those five-star reviews, let's say, than the one-star reviews, or tell me words that occur more often in the expensive restaurants and the cheap restaurants. So we're just just counting words and saying, which words occur more often than we would expect by chance in this class or that class. Um, so simple programs, simple counting, but amazing uh, intuitions kind of jump out at you from the data. You know, and I think that's a great point. I think the concept of something simple, you know, using something simple to extract something really interesting. Me, Anthony Bourdain, he said, I ask people incredibly simple questions about food and they reveal extraordinary things about themselves. That's absolutely true. So we're just saying, what words do you use? And subconsciously, that tells you a lot about your mental state and our attitudes toward food cravings, our attitudes toward sex, um, just by counting words and looking at them or, or words like macaroon and macaroni. We're just looking at how words are pronounced. Very simple. And then looking at their histories in dictionaries and in old texts that are all now, by now, they've all been, you know, scanned and uploaded to the web, these old books and things. So you can find out so much just by, just by looking at the words. And that brings me to another point that you made, which was about the sound of the words and like how you make the sound and the, what people think about it. Like say, for instance, you have an example of words with a certain sound, sound more sophisticated or more like a luxury product. Yes, so there's lots of subtle ways in which sound seems to convey meaning, and we call these sound symbolism. My favorite example of this is um, has to do with vowels. 
So across the world, languages tend to use two kinds of vowels, and we call them front vowels and back vowels. So a front vowel is a vowel like e, e, e. You can't see me through your speakers, but when I make my e, e, e sound, my tongue is kind of in the front of the mouth, and you're almost kind of smiling. And they're called front vowels because the tongue is toward the front of the mouth. And another class of vowels called back vowels. That's the your o, a, u. There, your tongue is way in the back of the mouth, and they sound kind of big and round. And it turns out that across lots of languages, hundreds of languages, front vowels are used for words that mean small things. So little, itsy bitsy, teeny tiny, and back vowels are used for words that mean big things. So huge, humongous. It's not a hundred percent true. So there's lots of exceptions to this. It's kind of a statistical generalization, but it's true across lots of languages that these front vowels are used for small words that mean small things. So we had this idea to look for this in food, and the hypothesis was: well, food, some food, is meant to be small and light and thin and delicate. And crackers was one example of that. You want a cracker to be light. You don't want a heavy, thudding, solid cracker. Ice cream, on the other hand, now that you want to be rich and creamy and solid and heavy. So we had this idea: maybe front vowels are more often used in these crackers to make them feel light and small, and back vowels in ice creams. And sure enough, if if you think about some names of crackers: Ritz and Triscuit and Wheat Thins and Cheez-Its and Chicken in a Biscuit. It's all is and ease, and ice cream names: chocolate and Rocky Road and Jamocha Almond Fudge and Caramel and Coconut. All ahs and ohs and oohs. Lots of back vowels. So we found a huge difference in this. So somehow, in whether it's conscious or, or unconscious, in designing these product names, we have this difference in vowels that makes us subconsciously think about the food differently. And it's true that advertisers do think about this. Branding agencies. They, that's another career path for a linguist. You can go work for a branding agency because you have this understanding of vowels. So not only do they have scientists going in and trying to find the bliss point between the fat and the sugar and the salt, now they have linguists trying to lure us into their products. Absolutely, it's the evil <laughs> side of linguistics, I guess. <laughs> um, well, the cracker comment kind of brings me to um, the next subject, which was around potato chips. You actually have a great title for that particular chapter. It's potato chips and the nature of the self. It sounds like an Eric Young book or something. Yeah. It's a very fun study, and what I my favorite part about this study is that the idea for it came from a freshman in my class, Josh Friedman, in my language of food class. For my class, we had all the students go out and look for fun language of food things, and Josh had this idea to look at potato chips. And being a freshman and not having any money, he he took his camera and went to the local store and just took pictures of the back of all the potato chip bags and brought them back to class. And we all talked about the words in them, and、um, we found some huge differences between cheap potato chips and expensive potato chips. And we didn't even realize going into it that there were expensive potato chips, but there's a actually a huge difference in price per ounce. Among different potato chips, one difference we found、um, has to do with this idea that social class is sometimes expressed by differing from other classes. This is a famous、um, claim by the French sociologist Bourdieu. What it is to be have the upper class is to be different than the lower class, and so that predicts that we should see lots of language in expensive potato chips distinguishing themselves. 
And sure enough, the expensive potato chips all had words like different or better or not like the other ones, and especially a lot of words like no or not or never, these negative words. And in fact, every time you have an extra negative word in a potato chip, you're paying four more cents per ounce for that potato chip. So you're paying for all that negation. But we also saw a big difference in um, the language of authenticity. So the expensive potato chips were all about the handcrafted nature of the potato chips and um, and the uh, the provenance of the chips from um, you know amazing potatoes from amazing places. And we call that natural authenticity. What it what it is to if you're an expensive potato chip, you want to be authentically natural, not artificial, but but really a real potato crafted by a real human. And by contrast, the cheaper potato chips were authentic in a completely different way. They talked about being American and being founded by an American firm and, and, the, and the, talking about the founders themselves and which part of America they lived in and the historicity and the, the, the history of the company itself. So it's almost as if there's two views of, of ways of being authentic, a way that has to do with with being natural in a way that has to do with being traditional and classic. And, and you can see that just written on the back of different potato chip bags. That's fascinating. So I actually have a potato chip bag here. It just happens. So this we uh, this is Tim's potato chip. So maybe you can look at the back of that potato chip bag. And what, what does it say? Oh, so this is great. Yes, yeah, so we talked about historicity and founders and all that language is there in the back. So I'm going to read you at the beginning. We've been cooking our potato chips in the shadow of the Cascade Mountains since 1986 using an old family recipe. So there's all those words, old family recipe, the date of 1986, where it is in America, you know, a Cascade Mountains, a classic American locale. And sure enough, uh, as you might guess from all of these features, Tim's is on the cheaper end per ounce. Of, of potato chips. So they're, they're using these metaphors of this traditional authenticity. Great. And, you know, we should give them a try too. I think this one is, what are they? They're sea salt and vinegar. Oh, that's my favorite actually. Mm. Oh, that's a nice crunch. Mm. I like the sea salt. It kind of gives it a different, like a nice flavor. I like that too. I like vinegar. Mm-hmm. I'm just, I, I like anything sour. So kind of, you know, kind of wrapping this up, here's the question I have, which is for consumers who are, you know, unwittingly walking down the aisles of a supermarket, not realizing that, you know, they hired some dark, you know, person from the dark side of language <laughs> <laughs> and the whole study to help them name and write all this stuff. I mean, it's not even just marketers. And But how does the work that you do, how can people kind of look for things? Um, how does it make them a better consumer or even just going out to restaurants? Like how can they find the fun and the words about the food that they're either buying or about to eat? I think just being aware of your language can make the whole thing fun. You know, if you look at a menu and you'll notice on the expensive restaurants, well, there's a word I don't know. And instead of being upset, you know, gee, I'm maybe I, I how, why is it I don't know this word? Now I feel insecure. You can think, well, someone put that word there to cause you to ask a question. Maybe you'll have a conversation with the waiter. It was a strategy maybe. And um, it's not about you. It's about your interaction with the restaurant. And, and we can find a good thing in that. Or we look at these um, names of foods. You know, um, I talk a lot in the book about the, the history of the word ketchup, which turns out to come from Chinese, or the word macaroon or the word macaron, just by thinking about where do these words come from? 
every day. You know, the linguistics of the everyday tells us so much about the world around us and our history. And it makes, you know, because language is everywhere, it just makes walking around in the world a great pleasure. Thank you so much for coming on my show today. Oh, thanks so much for having me. This was great. Thanks. My guest today has been Dan Jurowski, the always fascinating author of The Language of Food, A Linguist Reads the Menu. You can follow him on Twitter at Jurowski, at J-U-R-A-F-S-K-Y. You can get my recipe for coconut macaroons and some other linguistic tidbits at hungryforwords.show. This episode of Hungry for Words has been sponsored by Wolf Cooking Tools and their Reclaim the Kitchen initiative. Wolf invites you to reclaim your kitchen and your family time by preparing your own macaroons or, hey, even your own macaroni and cheese. Visit reclaimthekitchen.com to learn more. Today's show is produced by Abby Circatella. Music is by audionautics.com. We'd love to hear your feedback, so leave us a review on iTunes, or you can even send us an email at info at KathleenFlynn.com. That's it for our show. See you in two weeks with a new episode of Hungry for Words. Until then, eat well and be kind. I'm Kathleen Flynn.